Welcome. This is um, Mike Yeagley. And this is Evan Gertner. And you're listening to Grace on Tap. Today we're going to be, uh, as we do in every episode, we take a, a document from the Lutheran Reformation. And we, we sort of talk about the history of it and some of the content. And through it, we're hoping that you'll get some of the contemporary context for why these issues still matter today. At every podcast, we also feature a local Michigan beer. Today we've got from Atwater Brewery, the Hop Appeal, which is an ale brewed with an orange peel. Yeah, I'm not, actually, I'm, I'm curious what this one's going to taste like. So. I think it's going to remind us of like a Belgian wheat, uh, like if Blue Moon, but it's going to be a little bit more of a, a thicker beer than Blue Moon. Okay, it's a little little bit summery, a little obviously fruity. Um, good beer, though. Good beer. Very hoppy. Mm-hmm. And that's the difference between like a Blue Moon, which you'll get served with your orange peel and an umbrella. This one, no umbrella. <laughs> okay. Uh, okay, well... Let's let's go back with the, the this is this is really we're going to be talking about the the lead up to the Heidelberg disputation. And Heidelberg disputation takes place in 1518. Before that, in the context of all of this, why are these guys going to be talking about anything? It's because of the 95 theses. The 95 theses were directed towards the papal indulgences that Luther uh, was upset were being sold and giving people a false confidence. Their confidence was no longer rooted in the work of Christ, but now it was beginning to be rooted in their own good works and in the purchase of an indulgence. Now, Luther always believed that the attack on the indulgences was really a sidebar issue, and their real battle was going to be with the the battle on scholastic theology. Yeah, what scholastic theology is going to get rooted into is the certainty of salvation. Is it based on the infusion of grace that equips you and your body and soul to do good works, or is salvation something that is accounted or reckoned or imputed to you uh, by faith, that by faith I trust in the work of Christ, and my salvation is no longer in my own good works, but is reckoned according to me as righteousness by the work of Christ. Now, Luther wanted to just... He had problems with his, his his congregation. They were coming back. They were they were they had wrong ideas about this idea of indulgences, and he just wanted to have an academic discussion to to clean the air to clear the air on the whole idea of indulgences, recognizing that he knew it was going to open up the door to a much bigger issue. Scholastic theology is sort of the taking the the ideas of Aristotle logic. And and bonding that with Christian theology and sort of making them equal uh, equal contributors to the theological view. It's at least that's the way I look at it. That if God created us and God created logic, then God must work according to logic. And, and so Saint Thomas Aquinas becomes a big part of this. And for Luther, this notion that if God creates us and God creates logic, then God must work according to logic. For him, that placed way too much reliance on reason to be able to appropriate who God was. And he understood the only way to have a relationship with God was not through reason, but was through the word of God. So it's basically his, his concern was that that makes logic God, puts logic above God, and then God gets judged by logic. And, that's, and Luther says God is bigger than logic. Yeah, so even in Wittenberg, they changed part of the university curriculum for a while to get rid of disputations. Because disputations fostered this sense of confidence that you were right with God and you were right with your brothers because you won a logical argument. A disputation was just a debate. But if debate becomes central to how you understand your relationship to God, that you want a debate, 
then we need to get rid of the debates for a while. But then they end up adding them later in the mid-1520s, like 1526. They added debates back into the curriculum at Wittenberg because they realized the students that they were sending from Wittenberg were ill-equipped to deal with all those people who really knew how to debate. Logic has its place. And, and Luther always recognized that. Logic has its place. It's very important. Logic between humans is a great tool to work through issues. But the, the, it really is a question of the relationship between God and logic. Who's in charge? Is it God or is it logic? And so the Heidelberg Disputation gives us a great opportunity to see how a debate can produce a good thing. Now, the Pope actually, he, he decided, hey, we need to silence this Luther guy, right? The, the 95 Theses came out. They're, 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 they spread like wildfire. Big problem. It's and it's also a little bit of a financial squeeze on the on our, our on the the Pope, right? And so he says we need to silence this guy and 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 get this thing put away. And maybe the Pope recognizes that if he just silences him through by fiat by an order, that there is going to continue to be a rumbling of discontent. So his hope is let's solve it through the channels, and by doing that, people will know, hey, I did it right. Now, goes through the regular channels, and the, the responsibility to silence Luther ends up on a guy named Johann uh, von Staupitz. So, yeah, Johann von Staupitz. Ah. Uh, Staupitz had, had met Luther in Erfurt in 1506. Erfurt was where Luther became a monk. It is where he had lived uh, before moving to Wittenberg. Um, so Luther's Augustinian superior was Johann von Staupitz. Now, they were actually, they, they were pretty tight. Right? They were tight. In fact, Luther spent six hours once confessing his sins to Stolpitz because he was so plagued by his spiritual inadequacy. He was plagued with doubts. And Stolpitz would help point Luther to understand the means of grace and the doctrine of salvation through the blood of Christ. Uh, Stolpitz is understood by many to be one of the people that helped lay seeds for the Reformation, into the heart of Martin Luther, because he pointed Luther to look to the cross. Look to Jesus. Luther, you are in doubt. Look to the cross. Yeah, you don't have to rely on your works. What he saw was was a, a monk who was desperately trying to do the right thing, and, and Luther was killing himself. Six hours in confession, going through every little detail. I can't imagine being Staupitz sitting there for six hours with Luther, you know, yammering in my ear. About- well, and because he knows Luther, he knows he's probably coming back in an hour having forgotten something. So let's, <laughs> yeah. Now, Staupitz was very well respected and influential. He was the vicar of the German congregation of the Augustinian order. Uh, what that means is that he was the superior of the Augustinian order that Luther was a member of. And if Leo X is going to go through the proper channels. That means going through Stelpitz. Now, before now, Luther at the point of the ninety-five theses was the chair, the chair of the the biblical, biblical studies. studies at Wittenberg. Right mm-hmm. before Luther, Stelpitz had that job. Right. Yeah. So and and Stelpitz, by getting Luther, he was carrying the responsibility of being both the superior and this professor. So he he counted on Luther helping to lighten his load. He had hired Luther at Wittenberg to make his life easier. Little did he know, in a few years, Luther was going to make his life much more busy. Right. Much busier. Right. Now, the thing is, Luther always had a soft spot for Stalpitz, right? Even though Stalpitz remained Catholic, right? And we'll get into that later, but... But you know, Luther, even in his old age, he would he would reference Stalpitz. If you listen to read through the table talks, he he has 
I'm going to say uh, he's am, he has ambivalent feelings towards Staupitz. Often he speaks very, very, very kindly about him, but other times he's sort of, uh, he sort of let me down. I think he understood Staupitz as a pastor, as someone that could provide spiritual counsel to point you to Jesus, that he wasn't perfect, he didn't have, in the end, every idea right, but Staupitz helped serve the role that God needed at that moment, which was give Luther confidence in the word of Jesus Christ and not in himself. Now, Staupitz, he, so Staupitz is sitting in his office. He gets this response, you know, this letter from the Pope or through the regular channel saying, hey, you need to you know, silence Luther. And so Staupitz has a plan. Yep, he has a plan. And there was already a scheduled meeting for the Augustine order to get together. And the idea was, all right, if we want to have a debate and no one is debating the 95 Theses, let's bring Luther to this scheduled meeting in Heidelberg of 1518. And let's, let's just talk. And if we talk, maybe this all goes away. Now, Staupitz said, you know, we don't want to talk about anything controversial, right? We want to have this to all be non-controversial. Let's talk about, let's not talk about indulgences. Let's talk about, oh, sin and free will and grace. Yeah, maybe Staupitz didn't know that these things would be controversial. But I think he should have, because already in the 97 uh, theses that Luther had proposed for debate in September of 1517, you could tell there was issues with the question of sin and free will and grace. But these issues also were important for the Augustinian order to discuss because of the humanist movement that Erasmus was developing. And so Stopitz needs to silence Luther, but he wants his order also to be better equipped to understand Erasmus and the humanist movement that's happening. Now, one of the, I mean, and this is, I'm I'm, I'm by no means a, a an academic on this, but I guess I sort of thought that maybe Staupitz thought it was not going to be a big deal because of the 97 Theses. And no one had talked about this. You know, Luther had put the 97 Theses up, no issues, no big debates, no big letters to popes and bishops and all of that. The 97 Theses, no one even talks about those. We don't celebrate those with big, a mighty fortress is our God singing <laughs> moments. Right. This is the, the 97 Theses. And when we mention the 97 Theses, let's sort of refresh everybody's memory. The 97, we talk a lot about the 95 Theses. That's against indulgences. The 97 Theses were written in September of 1517. And Luther put them out there with, through one of his students and, and, nobody cared it was it was he sent it to he sent it to all the big players the 97 theses which was an attack on scholastic theology it was covered a lot of the same stuff on on sin on grace on free will it covered all the same issues that 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 the heidelberg disputation is going to cover but uh, nobody cared everybody said oh yawn right so maybe stop it's Pick the right topics, except that as Luther is preparing for a Heidelberg disputation, he's getting ready for a bigger conversation. Well, and, and more people are paying attention. More people are recognizing that this is a massive battle. And and so now the Heidelberg disputation, the, the 97 theses released in September of 1517, which were a major yawn to everybody, except for Luther, you know, that was a major yawn. Now we're coming into the Heidelberg Disputation in, uh, what, what's the month? So um, April 1518, May 1518, this is the time period. Okay. Uh, now, so there's lots of people paying attention, and so now let's take a look at some of the people that were there. Okay. Uh, there, were, there were a few people uh, that, I guess, the, the, the one guy that 
was supposed to give the, the, the Heidelberg Disputation was a young student. I think his name was um, Bayer. Very young student. Uh, 23 years old. And he's the one. Now, the way they did these disputations is the, the professor would work with the student to, to develop them, but it was up to the student to defend himself with these. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes the disputation becomes evidence of who the student is, but also everyone else is knowing who the professor is behind that student. So, so he's a big player in this. Um, so we got Lionheart uh, Bayer, then we've got Martin Booster, and we've got uh, Johann um, Brentz. So Martin Booster, he was one of those guys that was impressed by Luther there. He noted uh, in later comments that what really surprised him by Luther was how reliant on the Bible Luther was. Well, that's not really surprising, right? I mean, Luther but, was the was the professor of biblical studies in Wittenberg, and, and so he certainly knew his Bible. But if the caricature that's being built in Europe at this time is Luther is just this angry monk in Wittenberg, and then you get to meet him and you find out, really, he's just talking about the Bible? Yeah. It, it changes the, the picture from just this crazy guy so wait a minute, this is a conversation not about personality, but Luther's trying to have a conversation about the Bible. So what else did Brunt find interesting about Luther? Did he well, have any other... Well, so Booster found... Uh, was it was it Booster or was it... Yeah, we're talking about Martin Booster right here. So he also had familiarity with okay. the Church Fathers. That's something that impressed him about okay, Martin Luther. Okay. The fact that Luther was both aware of a need to rely one's faith on the Bible, but he looked to the Church Fathers to check his reading of Scripture. So, so, so tradition is is a big part of of what drives Luther. Luther is is both because I mean when when we talk about tradition, especially in the fifteen hundreds, right? They're when they say tradition, they're talking about the church fathers. Right? Yeah, so they're talking about those early church fathers that had the first moments of conflict with how the world is seeing Jesus and how they handled it. Okay, so that's another point that's not really super surprising to me. Uh, you know, Luther, of course, he's a professor. He's going to be aware of Augustine. He's going to be aware of uh, uh, Jerome, all these old church fathers from way, way back. Okay, so, so, so still, you know, not a big surprise to us today on, on the way Bucer sees sees Luther. But the fact that Martin Luther is still, even as he's relying on the Bible, is very conversation with early church fathers, means that Luther is attempting to bridge his reading of Scripture with how the whole church has been reading Scripture. So when Martin Bucer notes that Luther at the Heidelberg Disputation relies on the Bible and also is conversant with early church fathers, this lets Martin Bucer know that Martin Luther... It is bringing into the conversation uh, not a divorce from the church, but attempting to show continuity with the church. Well, this is actually one of, we're we're touching on one of the critical things about, uh, at least in my mind, and uh, Evan, please correct me if I'm wrong here, but the, the, the Lutheran view of we accept tradition as long as it does no harm to grace. And that's, we, we aren't part of that we'll say a, a radical reformation where we throw out all of tradition and we just rely on the Bible. We, we look to others who came before us who helped understand, help us understand all, because there's a lot of knotty problems that the early church fathers worked through and, and really understood the, the, the power of grace and the importance of grace. And so there's this, this, this Lutheran theology has a no harm to grace 
idea of tradition. At least that's the way I understand it. Right. And so as Luther would read the early church fathers, he would do so in the notion the Holy Spirit was at work in sharing the word of God, uh, both in the, the text that we have from Scripture, but then also how that word of God would have been read in the church. How the tradition of the church is something that the Holy Spirit would have been at work in as well. Now, so there was, for Martin Bucer, we have reliance on the Bible, conversation with the early church fathers. But then, really interesting, it is to see in Martin Luther courage. That here is someone who has the conviction of conscience that he can speak with such eloquence and, and courage and confidence. And just, why why does this happen? How can Martin Luther have such courage and confidence? It is... Uh, it's something that's very inspiring to Martin Bucer as he then is going to go and bring the Reformation over to France and to, and to the Switzerland areas to say, where does this confidence come from? And Mike, where, where do you think Luther's confidence comes from that Martin Bucer is noting? Well, it's obvious. You know, it's, it's coming from his faith in, in, in Christ and in his, in his faith in the, in the gospel, right? Yes. So, yeah, to have that faith and confidence in the word of God, to give you a courage to stand against the threat of the stake and being burned as a heretic, to stand confident, that that's inspiring. Now, and that's one of the things that, I mean, we think of Luther, obviously, in today's day and age, we look back 500 years, oh, yeah, of course he's going to, not a big surprise he's got courage. He's Martin Luther, for heaven's sake, you know, but... When you think about it, this is this is a guy whose life is at risk because he is stating the truth as he, you know, I'm going to I'm going to put it in 21st century, you know, as he understands it. But it's I, I believe, you know, Luther uncovered the, the biblical truth and he was willing to speak about it and 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 he put his life at risk to do it. I mean, I, there's not a whole lot of people I can think of in my life today who would do that. And then the next thing that Martin Bucer notes about Martin Luther is his willingness to listen to others. Now, that's actually a huge surprise. You know, I, I mean, when we think about Martin Luther, we, we think of, you know, bombastic, sort of, you know. Well, he is certainly that at times. There is an app on the web where you can go and get a random, uh, just uh, mean thing that Martin Luther said. And, and the idea is, you know, you could say, uh, just quote something and, and get it out there. And and fill it with bombastic quotes. Not hard to do. Luther has lots of them. Yeah, I mean, I think you know, I think of um, you know Erasmus. He calls him that goat Erasmus. Uh, and we'll talk about Erasmus later. A uh, big player during this whole era. I, I mean, the things he calls the Pope. You know, were were were. I mean, pretty shocking even to our ears today, right? Yeah, but so this Heidelberg disputation isn't this kind of thing like a presidential debate today where you get someone that has a minute and a half to speak and they fill it with invective threats and then they sit down. No, this would have been a long couple-week conversation. And so Martin Luther recognizes you can't fill every sentence with a threat. Uh, rhetoric proposes that you have to understand your listener. Well, and he, you know, Luther at this time, and, and it's actually, this this is sort of going back hand in hand with with the letter to Tetzel that we talked about in the last, where he, he tried to comfort Tetzel as he was dying. Uh, uh, even with uh, with Erasmus, this is, uh, I'm going to say, in the mid-1520s during the uh, his his battle with Erasmus, the, the the letters to Erasmus are very very full of uh, invective. But there was a, a letter that went out privately to to Erasmus where he's he's like you know I did that just for this reason and that reason you know I, I didn't really feel that you know so Luther was a much more gentle character than than his writings really 
Sometimes. Uh, sometimes. Sometimes. <laughs> yeah. He so could be. He could be a much more gentle character. Yeah. And so Martin Booster saw that. So all of these kind of compliments that Martin Booster notes about this experience of the Heidelberg Disputation gives us a snapshot into Luther's thoughts on these critical subjects at the time. Right. It lets us know that for uh, Martin Booster at this debate and, and for everyone else that's there, they got to see a man who relies on the Bible um, understands the Bible should be read within the context of a community of believers, and so he has respect for the church fathers. And, and Martin Luther knows that uh, you need to have courage at times when you're speaking up about the Bible, and you need to be able to do so in such a way that your audience can hear you and, and listen and, to you. And he's also he's also listening to them. Yeah. He's listening to what they have to say. He's trying to understand these other people. So this is this is part of being in a in a dialogue. Luther is is certainly in a dialogue at this. And I actually think that Luther remained in dialogue with with the other uh Wittenberg theologians for his whole life. You know, the, there was the Wittenberg community that they worked through all their issues together and the, it was it was always an idea of of we work together to get through our issues. Yeah, Robert Kolb just wrote a book called The Enduring Word of God and one of the things he talks about is the the fraternity of professors at Wittenberg and how much that was essential. So for Luther, absolutely. Now, Bucer gives a little snapshot of what Luther was like at the Heidelberg Disputation. Probably the most important thing in my mind, and Evan, I'd love to hear your thoughts. But the most important thing in my mind that comes out of the Heidelberg Disputation is the theology of the cross. Oh, this is a, a framework upon which the life is understood of anybody today. Is is it one that is of suffering or is it one of glory? And how you answer that question largely will shape how you read scripture, your relationship to God, and your relationship to your neighbor. Now, the, the, our next episode is going to be dedicated to the theology of the cross. I'll, I'll tell you, I've heard the concept, theology of the cross, probably my whole life as a Lutheran, right? But it's really, it, it's never really, I never really understood it until I started reading about the Heidelberg Disputation. All right, so folks, make sure you listen to the next episode when we talk about the theology of the cross versus the theology of the glory. So the Heidelberg Disputation, it has a typical medieval disputation structure. Luther prepared 28 theological theses along with 12 philosophical theses. Now, he also had some short proofs, right, and where he gives biblical background to his positions on those theological, uh, those theological theses. And so Bayer is debating the theses, and Luther is presiding over the debate, and Stolpitz has set up this up in Heidelberg so that there can be a conversation about sin, uh, grace, and free will. Okay, so... So that's that's sort of the background. Now, what we're going to do, we, usually we would go through and we'd, we'd cover the next episode. We'd cover the, the Heidelberg Disputation. We're going to dedicate that one to the theology of the cross. So we're going to go now talk about, okay, what happened after the, the Heidelberg Disputation? Yeah, let's talk about a little bit some of the people that were there. This is the, the screen credits at the end of a movie <laughs> and the what happened to them kind of moment. So Stolpitz, he remained thoroughly Catholic. Eventually, his relationship to the Reformation fizzles when he realizes it's going to be more than just a discussion about clerical abuses and reforms of the practices of the church. It's going to be at its center a question of theology. And for Stolpitz, that's too much. So he releases Luther from the Augustinian order. Uh, Stolpitz himself remains a Catholic. But now, noteworthy for some, the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod has a commemoration calendar where uh, throughout the every week there is at least one or two people that will be remembered for their role in the life of the church, and Stolpitz is a part of that.
Stelpenjahr commemoration calendar. Now, as as I mentioned earlier, uh, Luther's feelings on Stelpitz were always sort of mm, so-so, sort of ambivalent. Uh, but he certainly thought... Stalpitz, when he released him from the Augustinian order, uh, it's pretty clear, at least to me, that Luther felt that it was a betrayal. It was yeah. one of one of the he he has three great betrayals that he he references where he was more and more isolated, and this is the first of the three. And the other one, then, so Martin Bucer, he becomes a strong supporter of the Reformation. Uh, but now, some of you may not know, the Reformation splintered regarding communion, Holy Communion. And that splinter happened along theological lines, but those theological lines are interestingly defined by geography and not just individual opinions about the theology. Lutheran Doctrine centered in Wittenberg stated that Christ was truly present in communion. In- now, and and uh, the Swiss Doctrine, if you go down to, to Switzerland, uh, they were really heavily influenced by a guy named Zwingli. And we'll be talking about Zwingli down the road. Yeah, we'll talk about Zwingli, especially in the Council of Magdeburg and and the agreement that Philip of Hesse tried to bring between Zwingli and Luther in purposes of uniting for the Small Called League. There's an, in fact, did you know, Mike, there's a board game now for the Small Called League where you can fight on the side of the Lutheran princes or the Catholic princes. You're kidding me. Yeah, uh, it's a... it was pricey though. It's seventy five dollars, but it's a board game, yeah, for the small call. So, uh, so Martin Booster's uh, somewhat in, in line of that. So, southern German cities, uh, they're sort of in the middle, right? S- yeah, they're, and and that becomes a great uh, motivation for Philip of Hesse, who is more in in idea of political unity, and he's always hoping that Booster, Swingley, Luther, all these guys can just get on the same page, so that the military force of Switzerland and these edge German cities could be marshaled together. Now, Bucer was, Bucer was, was, he ended up really like the, the first ecumenicist, right? He, he tried to bring all these people together. He worked very, very hard to try to get Zwingli and Luther and everybody to, to have one doctrine and never was able to quite get. So there. he eventually is exiled to England where he influenced the Anglican church. Okay. Okay. And then Martin Brent's a person we didn't talk about too much at the beginning, but he was there also at the Heidelberg Disputation. And it largely shaped not Johann Johann Brent's, right? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Johann Brent's. So many Martins. All right. But <laughs> Johann, he was Melanchthon's second-hand man during the drafting of the Augsburg Confession in 1530. I imagine that's going to be several podcasts down the road when uh, we talk about yeah, the Augsburg yeah. Confession. And and he was he was there at the doctrinal councils of the Reformation. And when Emperor Charles V decided he was done working with the Reformation, he declared Johann Brentz an enemy of the state and pursued him. Okay, and he, he was pretty much running. He was on the run for a big part of his life, you know, for running from the emperor. Uh, it was, it's amazing when you, when you start reading about the people who were involved with the, and, and how they put their lives at risk at many different points. Uh, over the, over, over the, just, you know, for the, for the doctrine of grace. So Brentz finds his uh, safety in Stuttgart and he died there in 1570. And then what about Bayer? Bayer was the guy who actually did the final, he was the one who, he was front and center during the Heidelberg Disputation. So he was the guy at the microphone, but we don't know too much about him. We know that Luther and he uh, continued to have a relationship. And because in 1534, Luther wrote him a friendly letter about baptism. Oh, okay. Okay. So, so, so they, he was obviously came out on the side of the Reformation, but sounds like he was just like a common parish pastor. And that lets us know in this Reformation that the story happened in, in villages and in cities, in, in congregations throughout Germany because of people like that guy. 
And and even today, when we think about how will I make a difference in the lives of people in the name of Jesus Christ? Well, sometimes it will come because I am some famous theologian who has bunches of books published. For most of us, and I think probably for me, that's not the story. I was going to say, yeah, here are a couple of guys drinking beer and talking theology. That's that's a pretty small small uh, little corner of the pie here. Uh, so I think that's all I got. You got anything more? No, I think it's a good introduction for us understanding the role of the Heidelberg Disputation. And when we get into the next episode, I, I think we'll enjoy the meat we find there. Yeah, a lot, lot, lot of meat on the, in the Heidelberg Disputation. It's going to be a, a great episode. I'm looking forward to that one. Uh, just want to say thanks to uh, Josh, our sound guy. Uh, Maria, who does a lot of, my, my wife Maria, who does an awful lot of uh, digging for us. And I'm thankful for today for my wife Christy as she's at home uh, making sure our kids uh, don't destroy the house. <laughs> and then, then we have, uh, uh, let's see, We I wanted to also say thank you to St. Paul Lutheran Church in Hamburg, Michigan. Um, and also want to recognize all, I mean, a lot of, we've used a lot of good documentation on this one. Uh, we The Luther's Works, Volume 31, uh, got a lot of good information out of that. Um, uh, also, and the uh, Kurt Allen's uh, ninety-five theses, Martin Luther's ninety-five theses, a great book. We talked about, we've been talking about that. We've got a lot of information from that over the last few episodes. Um, and then I enjoyed, um, and this is something we'll enjoy a lot for the next podcast. Gerhard Forty's book on being a theologian of the cross, reflections on Luther's Heidelberg disputation from fifteen eighteen. This book by uh, Forty is is really. Um, essential reading for anyone that wants to understand the 95 Theses. That's really going to be... I mean, be not the 95 Theses, the, the Heidelberg, Heidelberg Dis- Disputation. And that's going to be the foundation of, of uh, the, a lot of good information today, and that's going to be the, 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 the meat and potatoes of the next episode. Finally, uh, you know, I found a great episode on Martin Bucer and, uh, and, and Wikipedia, and I thought that there was a lot of good information there, so a lot of, uh, you know, also you can go on to your web browser and just type in any of these folks. Martin Bucer... Uh, buyer, and you can find a, a thing or two. And I think with the 500th Reformation, we're going to find a lot of good resources out there. And uh, enjoy just the discovery, the rabbit hole of any name we brought up or any point of history. If, read about it. Discover more about yourself. Go down that rabbit hole and write to us what you find out. You can write to us at graceontap.podcast at gmail.com. Or you can uh, you can check us out. We have a, our website at graceontap podcast.com uh, All right, have a great day.